Medic Mindset is supported by educational tech company iSimulate. Their partnership allows me to keep the full library of episodes available to you on multiple platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, however you listen. I'm so thankful for their continued support. I personally use their products in my classroom, and I'm proud to call them a partner. Thank you, iSimulate. Reading books and reading the same books as other people, it's a shared experience. And you can actually communicate with each other more effectively because of that experience. You know, there's this, there's one quote that I um, I memorized just by heart because I love it so much. And I, I've actually found myself reasonably quite frequently use it. The quote is that humans don't mind hardship. In fact, we thrive on it. What we do mind is feeling unnecessary. And modern society has perfected the art of making people feel unnecessary. So to be totally honest, uh, I still have a hard time with identifying as a reader because I have this idea in my head that readers are people that read thousands of books and love every minute of it and just natural and they rather spend their time reading than doing anything else. And that's not me. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This episode was born from an accident. There's another format of Medic Mindset episodes called Mixtape. It's where I asked three guests one question. In a recent mixtape episode called The One Book, I asked the guests to recommend one book to new paramedics. But in classic medic mindset interview fashion, I couldn't just leave it there. I wanted to dig deeper. Is there a book you go back to over and over? What book would you recommend to a new paramedic? Are you a hard copy book reader, an e-reader, or an audiobook reader? These are some of the questions we dig into. So here we are. It's long format. It's a deep dive, not a surface touching of the toes in the water. Medic Mindset listeners have proven through the years you aren't afraid of committing to 45, 60 minutes to one topic. So pop in your earbuds, do the housework, enjoy your commute. These episodes are for you. The medic that's a little different than the masses of medics. You feel and reflect and are infinitely curious. The guest in this episode is firefighter paramedic Michael Herbert. He's from North Carolina and now works as the program manager for RQI Partners, developing new digital resuscitation programs for the AHA and the Resuscitation Academy. It was an honor to have him on the show. I've been wanting to get him on for quite some time now. After we finished recording, he kept texting me all these other books he wished he had mentioned. But I think no matter how long we had talked, we'd never really exhaust his list. He's got lots of great recommendations. Take a listen. I wanted to talk to some of my friends, other readers like yourself, about the books they have read, about you know how reading fits into their life. And the way I picked the guests was that I thought about, well, who do I know that I talk about books a lot with? But then also, which of my friends have gifted me a book? Who have, have used a book as a gift? And I thought of you, Nisa Hathaway, and Maya Dorsett, because you've all sent me books. You gave me a book by Simon Sinek called The Infinite Game. And I was curious, maybe we start there. How did you decide to give me that book? So I guess the reason why I gave it to you is because I know we shared a similar mindset on you know our love for books and the types of books that we read. And when I got done reading Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, I, I was so compelled by it. I, I felt like it was a book that you know, everybody should read and the world is not going to be whole until everybody does. 
So I just decided to think about who are people that, you know, share my passion with. And uh, you came to mind and it worked out that, you know, we had an opportunity to meet up for coffee and there it was. That was so cool to meet you in person because I have so many friends like you who, you know, we've communicated over social media and been speakers at conferences and kind of shared these parallel lives, but never really sat down and had coffee together. And that day was really special. Uh, Justin Aaron joined us, a good buddy of yours and a, a guest of the podcast as well. I've looked back to where we, how you and I first connected. Do you remember how we first connected? I want to say I heard one of your podcasts and I just reached out to you on social media to say, uh, you know, job well done. And I loved it. Yeah, I think I think that's possible. But what I remember, the very first time I really remember making kind of that personal connection with you was that you translated a German tweet. Someone in Germany tweeted about medic mindset or a blog post or something, and you translated it for me. Yeah, that's right. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I do recall it now. I did forget about that. Uh, I know, but tell the listeners how do you how do you know German? Yeah, I am. I am a German. Uh, I am an immigrant. I moved to the states when I was twelve years old. English is my second language. Um, and for full disclosure, my dad is American. Uh, he just happened to live in Europe for thirty years, where I was born and raised. My mother was German, and I didn't come to the United States until nineteen ninety four. I was thinking of other ways we've interacted. You did the art for one of the episodes, one of the thinking series. You did the art for the syncope episode. And then your daughter did some art for me. She did an avatar for me. And um, so we've we've had fun doing creative things together through the years. So I want to ask you, and this is going to take some honesty on your part. I'll be honest, too, if you'll be honest. The question is, what's the last book you read? And I'd, it doesn't need to be sexy or glamorous or intellectual. It just needs to be honest. What's what's the, the current book you're reading, maybe? Yeah, so I am not currently dedicated to one book. Uh, the last book I did complete just a few weeks ago was Atomic Habit by James Clear. Do you read real books? Like, do you hold a book or do you use an e-reader? No, I use real books. I, I love the feel in my hand. I don't even have an e-reader. Yeah, I don't, I don't No, I don't either. <laughs> so you have multiple books going at once? I do quite frequently, yes. I hear that from readers over and over. Do, do you think it's for different times of the day or you get bored with one and pick up the other one? What's that about? It's quite often it's uh, it's both a commitment and a uh, just opportunity, right? Do I have the opportunity to, to read during the pandemic? You know, my habit has definitely fallen off, but, you know, I'm trying to dedicate myself back to reading because of the power that it can give you. You know, committed to reading a few books this year, whether I'm going to be traveling or not. Will you tell us more about the pandemic bit? Because I have, during the pandemic, I mean, it's probably obvious to listeners, I've decreased number of episodes I've been putting out. I've decreased reading. I don't know what I'm doing with my time, maybe processing. <laughs> like you, I'm kind of getting back into it. But I was kind of angry at myself for a while for not doing more with the time, the alleged free time at home. What do you make of that, that our reading fell off? Because mine did too. Um, you know, I think ironically, that last book that I read actually gave me some of those answers. Um, so James Clear in his book, he talks about, you know, habits and he references back to a couple of the other books that I've read, um, most notably Power of Habit by uh, Charles Duhigg. Um, and Charles Duhigg really created that, that formula, right? Those four stages of habits, right? There's a cue, a craving, a response, and then a reward. 
And, you know, what I noticed during the pandemic, my entire life got turned upside down. So those normal cues that used to get me to pick up a book and, and want to read, they, they weren't there. So I didn't, I didn't read. Uh-huh. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's why the podcasting fell off for me as well as those cues of, you know, going to a conference and talking to colleagues and having kind of inspiration or um, you and I were talking earlier about how we used air travel. I used air travel going to conferences as my time to edit. Uh, you said you used it for reading. That totally makes sense. Like we've lost those rhythms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, my uh, my cue used to be sitting down in an airplane seat and I very deliberately would not log into Wi-Fi and because I predominantly flew American, American didn't have that TV screen on the back of the seat. So I wasn't distracted. I would grab my book. I had no electronics and it would be my cue to read. And once I got into a few pages, I wouldn't stop. You know, I told you I was going to tell you what book I've been reading. I'm halfway through it. It's called Shadow Divers. It's by Robert Curson. And it's about these Americans who discovered a, a U-boat, you know, a German sub off the coast of New Jersey. Um, it was set at like 200, 230 feet and how they, first they discovered it because some fishermen were noticing that, that you know, there was lots of animal life there. They went down to it and they had to keep going back down to figure out kind of the identity of who owned the sub because it truly was lost and no one knew it was there. So I just learned recently by of one of your posts that you're a diver. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. yeah so I, I've, ne- I've never been diving before in my life. So is that a pretty significant distance? I would, I would imagine so. Oh, for sure. Recreational divers usually won't go below 100, 120 feet. You start getting nitrogen narcosis at that depth. So they have to be really careful to not stay down there long. Um, and in fact, in that book, some of the divers don't make it. They die down there. It's a, it's a great book, and it's um, just reading for pleasure again. You know, I think I was reading so much to learn that during the pandemic, I did get back to reading just for pleasure as an escape. Yeah, and an escape, but also I think it it builds a lot of transferable skills, right? These these types of experiences from other uh, from other disciplines or industries or topics or even fiction. You just said something really interesting that fishermen noticed something different about the environment and that's what cute them on that there's something there and that's that's what drove one thing after another and that's life mm-hmm. yep do you ever stop reading books that you don't like you just put them away i feel obligated like i'm abandoning it or i <laughs> i've invested it's like the sunk cost fallacy like i've i've already put in all this time to read the first half and i should finish it i do i i put down i probably put down more books than i actually complete reading Oh, that makes me feel better. <laughs> but it's but it's not it's not because I don't appreciate the book. It's oftentimes just because life gets in the way of it, or there's something else that catches my attention. And um, I always have full a full intention to return to it at one point. And you know, I'm I'm hoping I have a lifetime to catch up on these. That's one of the reasons why I love hard copies, right? There's just something about it being there, and it's a reminder and something tangible. I guess some people have vision boards. I have bookcases. Yeah, things that you've read that you want to be reminded of the theme of the book. For me, it's also like a trophy. Like I did that. I completed that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy. And, and I think it is. I think it's a, it's a great experience. You know, reading books and reading the same books as other people, it, it, 
It's a shared experience. And you can actually communicate with each other more effectively because of that experience. And it's maybe because English is my second language. I actually have a really keen notion to this that words matter. If you're able to use a word concisely, given the reflection of a book, it really adds to the, you know, the understanding. It is nice. I think of Maya Dorset as you say that, because she and I've read well, I think she's read every book ever written, but so consequently, we've read a lot of the same books. You know, all she has to say is Daniel Kahneman, mm. you know, and we both know we're talking about system one, system two thinking. That's right. Not that I made it all the way through that book. I- I'll be honest with them. And I want to, I want to say that, that sometimes I reference texts that, and that's a text to me, that thinking fast and slow. Um, sometimes I ref- reference the kind of knowledge points or theories or theses from books. and But yeah, I did not complete them. Um, but I feel like I got a grasp of it having read parts of it or people will tell me to go read a chapter or something like that. Well, you're in good company with me or maybe bad company because I'm in the same boat. I read half of that book and it did. It, it, just, it, was, it was a beast to read. And reading is really not something that's natural to me. I am not an intrinsic reader. It takes me time and effort and it is actually exhausting. And, you know, I hope somebody listening to that that doesn't consider themselves a reader will take a little bit of comfort in the fact that you can be a reader even if you don't consider yourself a reader. You know where people, I think the word is they kind of shame themselves about is they'll say, oh yeah, I read that book. But then they'll say, oh, well, I didn't really read it. I, I listened to the audio book as if that's somehow less than. To me, that's reading a book. You just had someone read it to you. Audiobooks have allowed a lot of people to access books that weren't previously wouldn't just sit down and read a book, but they'll listen to an audiobook while they're driving or doing chores or something like that. And they're still getting the knowledge transfer. They're still getting the um, same content that I'm, I'm getting when I read. Absolutely. I mean, I've had, you know, the blessing of having to fly a lot. I had the opportunity to read but if I'm in, if I travel by car, I usually have an audiobook queued up and the same thing, right? You, you gain knowledge, you gain insights. I got to admit, it doesn't stick as well with me as reading the book, but I still have this shared experience that I can talk to people about it. Hmm. The next question is a difficult one because it is asking for a singular answer. I'm asking for you to say, what's the one book? that has been the most influential? You know, there's many ways books can influence us. I was curious what you would do with that question. What is the most influential book you've read? You know, of all the questions that you gave me, this is this was probably the easiest for me to answer. What? Yeah, because I had a very clear, um, a very clear situation. The book is called Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain by David Eagleman. Do you remember if someone recommended it to you or if you just felt, you know, kind of stumbled upon it? Yeah, I, I did stumble upon it, but because I was deliberately looking for something, I was looking for answers, and I found those answers inside of this book. It sparked both a foundation of understanding for me to read a lot of other things, but then it, it gave me some answers and comfort and actually helped me through a really like difficult time in my life. I was uh, injured, laid up in bed, unable to move or work. I'm not sure if I was going to be able to return to work. And, you know, I, I absolutely love being a paramedic. It was, you know, it wasn't my identity, but it was definitely a calling for me. And, you know, when I was not able to work at that point, 
not knowing if I'm going to be able to return. And then also I had fear about how am I going to take care of my family? What else am I going to do? And, uh, you know, mixed together during this injury on all the medications, muscle relaxers, pain meds, steroids that they had me on, I didn't feel like myself. So this book, I mean, I can tell you a ton about this book because I reference back to it all the time. I recommend it to people all the time. And it was just really fantastic, both from learning about myself, but then it also gave me so many tools for the profession, right? So when I did get back on the truck and worked, it gave me better insights into neurology, behavioral disorders, strokes, and so on. So what was your in- injury? Do you mind my asking? I uh, had a back injury. So uh, pulling a guy out of a confined space and something popped and yeah, I was in tremendous chronic pain. And actually here, you know, what is it, 12 years now later, uh, I'm still in pain. Mm. Well, a lot of people can relate to that. I cannot, but I know a lot of listeners can. It comes with the comes with the job. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I, I wouldn't wish my worst enemy. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you don't. It's called Incognito. And what's the subtitle? The Secret Lives of the Brain. Lives. Yep. Lives, plural. That's right. Huh. And the author? David Eagleman. Okay. I knew we would reference a lot of books in this episode, so the show notes are going to be really key for this. So you go back to that book. It's sitting on your shelf and you go back to it sometimes? Currently, it's loaned out to somebody and I don't know who has it, <laughs> so I might have to buy my fifth copy of it. <laughs> this, is a, this is our plight. We give away our books, don't we? We do, yeah. Right? So yeah. shared experiences and you give it to people. I mean, this is... You know, to me, giving a book and receiving a book is one of the greatest gifts. Mm. My mom, whenever I go to her house, she'll just start handing me books. And I always feel so guilty until she told me one day, she's like, oh, no, no, no. Whenever I love a book, I'll just buy like two or three copies because I know I'm going to be giving them away. I I did the same thing with Infinite Games. Mm -hmm. I think you had more than one copy that day. You may have given one to Justin as well. I don't remember. I did. I did. I have to see if he read it. So, Justin, if you're listening. (laughs) so do you recommend that book to others that have injuries or was it was it something in that book specifically that made it easier for you to you know come back to the job or get through that hard time you know this author was so elegant in his writing and his understanding and able to just take a very very complicated topic and subject and really break it down for people to ex- understand. So what? So back up. What was the topic? How our brain works. Yes, exactly. Well, I need to read that. Yeah, and it's not just about how the brain works, but the interface between the complexities of the brain. You know, the difference between the brain. You know, and just how we behave. It's quite fascinating. It it gives you actually a really great foundational understanding of what most people learn in college and psychology courses and so forth. There's a quote that I've actually started using uh, when I teach classes. So when I introduce behavioral emergencies or neurology, I actually quote David Eagleman. Um, And just as a side note, I actually use his quote in some tweets from time to time, fully giving credit to him. And one time he actually liked one of my tweets. So that was a highlight for me. So the quote is that the brain is so complex that it bankrupts human language and will necessitate new strains of mathematics to understand it. And what's fascinating with that is that any beliefs when people think that they absolutely know something about it, 
it's it's a humbling concept, right? Because it makes you realize that even with all of our medical knowledge and education and science behind it, and we improve all the time, we don't fully understand the brain. And I think we need to be humble and we need to be cautious. And when we treat with anybody that has a personality change or something going on, because it is not, it's not without consequence. And there's a debate over free will and criminology and everything else that this foundational understanding really affects. So I have a handful of books I read almost as a reference. I'd say they're mostly nonfiction, some stoic books, or uh, there's this great book, The Four Agreements. They center me and they calm me when I'm a little agitated or going through a hard time. Those are the ones I find that I go back to and I guess reframe. They kind of reframe where I am. Do you have books like that? that Not necessarily um, ones that call me or reframe everything for you, but I guess I'm curious if you have books that you read over and over. This is one book that I do pick up quite frequently and just read little pieces of. It's called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. Um, The author is Sebastian Younger. And this book is, uh, it, it really is a great reframe. It's something that I do for me, you know, internally. What's going on for you when you go to it? And what do you get from it? You know, there's this, there's one quote that I um, I memorized just by heart because I love it so much, and I, I've actually found myself recently quite frequently use it. The quote is that humans don't mind hardship. In fact, we thrive on it. What we do mind is feeling unnecessary. And modern society has perfected the art of making people feel unnecessary. And it's just a reminder when things get hard and so on, It's I look around at everything that I have and you know, I don't have for wants of anything, but yet still, why am I feeling blue? And it's kind of a reminder that sometimes, you know, what what am I really pursuing? And then I have to reframe, you know, my mindset of what I'm really trying to do and get back to a purpose that I think, you know, it's just, just that excites me. This book was really intended, I think, for uh, veterans coming back from war. So Sebastian Younger was actually a, um, a war reporter. He was a journalist that went to many different theaters of conflict and he talked about stories there and these things that he absorbed. And, you know, he, he both used, you know, history, psychology, and anthropology to kind of make this case. Um, you know, I think there's a little bit of, of caution as you read, you know, some of his work because, you know, he is a journalist and he tries to reference and interpret psychology and scientific papers. Um, I think he does a great job. But like Malcolm Gladwell, they don't always nail it. But it's still, it gives you a really just interesting perspective. And I like to read stuff and like anything else, take it with a grain of salt and reflect on it and think how it applies. I'm going to put that quote in the show notes just so I can go back and reference that. It's so true about feeling necessary. I've kind of learned that I'm not chasing happiness. I'm chasing meaning, chasing purpose. I think I was chasing pleasure (laughs) and I thought that was happiness. Yeah. And I mean, we are... We're in a dopamine-saturated society. Everything gives you feedback from likes on social media to winning a video game to watching TV. Everything's so instant. And I think it affects your your mind, your life. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm most concerned, you know, for my children. I'm not going to withhold any of this stuff from them, but, you know, teaching them how to manage it in a healthy way. You know, you said that you weren't – I think you said you – weren't that much of a reader until, well, tell me again, when, when did you start considering yourself a reader? 
So to be totally honest, uh, I still have a hard time with identifying as a reader because I have this idea in my head that readers are people that read thousands of books and love every minute of it and just natural and they rather spend their time reading than doing anything else. And that's not me. Yeah, that makes sense. You've got this kind of meme vision of somebody curled up on a couch and they'll stay there all day. And Yeah, no, exactly. But I, I can tell you what, I, I think there is proof reflecting back on everything that I have read that, you know, I have even going slowly, right? Only reading a few books a year. It does compound. Now I'm at a point where, man, I've, I have read that book. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And part of building a habit. And once again, referencing back to the book, Atomic Habit, James Clear talked about that. He, you know, there are different ways of creating habits. And I'm a huge proponent of people reading. I think there's a habit you should build, but you got to be careful. You don't want to create an outcome driven, you know, goal because those are short lived. I'm going to read 10 books. Well, you're going to read 10 books and then what? Oh yeah. Right. And you, all of a sudden, you know, you're not a reader anymore. You ditch your 10 books and it's done and you may not pick up another book for your entire life. Right. The outcome driven is the key that I'm hooking into that, that you don't make it outcome driven, that it's more the, the journey, the process of doing it. That's the goal. Absolutely. Speaking of outcome driven reading, I started using this app. There was a year, I think it was maybe 2014 or 15. I took a year off from social media it was before the podcast, and I just consumed. I consumed books, and I, I listened to podcasts, but I took a year off from uh, creating anything and just, just consumed. That year, I found that app. It's called Goodreads. Or it's a website called Goodreads where you log the books that you've read and track your progress and you review stuff, and it's kind of like a huge app of a book club, so to speak, because you see other people's reviews of these books. And I hated it. I hated the stinking app. I started logging every book I had ever read. And it just became this homework. It became a job. And it became totally unfun. I chunked it. I deleted that thing. And I've never looked back. But when you talked about the outcome-driven task or outcome-driven undertaking, that's what I thought of was that stupid app. Yeah. So James Clear talks about right that process-driven where you focus on your system and environment can help you build habits more. Um, but then he also talked about the identity-based habit, right? You almost, you telling yourself what you are drives you to it. And, you know, these are all different tools, right? So me, if I'm saying to myself, I am a reader, I'm more likely to pick up a book and read something. Charles Duhigg talked about this in Power and Habit. I would read Power of Habit and then read Atomic Habit back to back because they really do intertwine um, for you to get a full thing about you know, you read for outcomes because you think suddenly something magical is going to happen. But if you despise it because it's just not right, you know, you're actually not going to gain anything out of it. Then going back to borrowing from another book, Simon Sinek, you know, start with why. Ask yourself, why do you want to read? Reading is not the point you can read or listen to podcasts or, you know, have life experiences. I just think reading accelerates the learning faster than anything else I have found. Yeah, you know, just to uh, borrow from Atomic Habit again, you know, I mean, he didn't talk about this specific, but it kind of applies. If if you want to start reading, right, lay a book somewhere where you know you're going to sit during the day at some point and just make a rule that you're going to read one page. Create the cue when you sit down, pick up the book, read it, 
read just one page. So it becomes a daily habit. And over time, then all of a sudden, you're going to, every time you sit down, you're going to develop this craving. I want to pick up this book now. And that's how you build. You, you build habits by these small incremental changes you do in, in your behavior. And I think most people, you know, in anything that they do, they throw themselves headlong into it. Anything new is hard. David Eagleman actually talks about this quite extensively. And this is a great lesson, I think, for field training officers or, or preceptors, right? You running a call, even if it is a tough call for you, if you have vast amounts of experience, most everything that you do is on autopilot. So when you get back from that call, it was just another call, even though it was maybe considered, you know, a, a you know, good call, right? Um, for a student, if you're precepting or for a new employee, right, every move was something that they had to concentrate on. They're going to be exhausted. So what I used to do is I had a bad call. I used to ask my student, hey, please, I want you to sit down, close your eyes, you know, and relax for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and they need it. And it actually helps learning. It cements what they just experienced. And I think from a mental health aspect as well, we need those breaks. We can't overwhelm. I think you talked about it, stretch goals versus, you know, breaking points people yep. reach. Well, and that also ties into Daniel Kahneman's system one and system two. So once you've kind of become a master of a trade, you're spending a lot of time in uh, system one thinking. You're mm. just, you're just doing the automated right. stuff, but your learner, the, the new guy, the novice, they're in uh, system two and just slogging through cognitively and just their brain is uh, burning a lot of fuel. It's, it is very tiring. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And then think about this too, right? We're burning a lot of fuel. I love that you said that, right? Eagle men said, you know, the brain is this mushy pink substance that's encapsulated in this dark, black, silent, you know, skull of yours, it only takes up about 2% of your body weight, but it actually consumes 20% of all the energy that you consume in a day. And now put in the overdrive, like people, especially in healthcare, when they're new, they should be allowed to eat. They need that fuel to be able to learn, you know, and I think sometimes as, you know, you know, because I suffered, you have to suffer mentality. I think it's outdated. You know, we got to get rid of that nonsense. It's so nice to talk to you on the on the podcast. We we basically have had a few conversations just like this one, but not on recording. And I do think it's books that we end up talking a lot about are concepts from books, concepts that certainly I got from books. Yeah, and that goes back to, you know, having those shared experiences. We're able to get to the point of something inside of a framework quite quickly. I mean, you know, coming from a different culture and you know, from a different language, I uh, I find it amusing how two native speakers can say kind of the same words, but they actually mean slightly different things, and that can create conflict. You know, so that's once again why books I think create great models, and if you know which model to apply in which situation, um, it, it just it, it makes you more effective at, at having impact, and I hope it makes you more humble to realize it's not about who is right, it's about what is right. And you're trying to drive down to the truth. What book would you gift a new paramedic? This is actually a book I think you're going to really appreciate me mentioning because we've had conversations about it before, but it's by the author Carol Dweck and it's Mindset. 
I do love that book. And it if you look at that book, the font and everything, I think I used a very similar font for Medic Mindset's logo because mm. that book was a huge inspiration for starting this podcast. Do you mind if I maybe reverse the roles here for a minute and ask you to speak on it? I think, you know, your listeners, I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts on this. Sure. So Carol Dweck wrote a book called Mindset. In that book, she compares basically two different approaches to learning. One is a fixed mindset. One is a growth mindset. It's really a lot about self-talk. This is a book that my mom gave me. I don't talk. I haven't talked a ton about my mom on the on the show, but she dedicated her life to studying self talk in young learners, so elementary age learners. Hmm. Uh, she would sit and observe kindergartners working through problems. And the cool thing about kindergartners is they talk out loud. Uh, they, oh, sorry, they think out loud. So what you and I've moved into our own kind of quiet self-talk inside our head. They just blab on and on as they're doing tasks. And some of them talk really nicely to themselves. And then some of them are not nice. And some of them are their own cheerleader, right? And she made it her area. She's a PhD educational psychologist. She made it her area to kind of identify was did positive self-talk translate to better, you know, performance, academic performance. And it'd be no surprise to anyone listening that it did. So this was a book that she gave me and it's, it's similar to that concept. The the concept is that learning is possible for every single human, right? In in the absence yeah. of, you know, some type of, you know, neurological disorder, uh, given enough time and in the right environment, Really, any brain should be able to learn new tasks, new information. And that's the growth mindset, that if you just believe that learning can occur, it will. And we just have to be patient and do the work. Carol Dweck argued that we need to be very careful about how we communicate learning um, to all learners. Because if we were to say to a a young student, oh, you're really smart, right? You're really good at this too early, they may create a fixed mindset where they think that intelligence is a fixed trait and not something to be gained. Um, The the kid that's told they're smart too early, when stuff is hard later, and it will be because learning is hard, when they don't pick up something easily, their whole identity (laughs) might get shattered for one uh, because they've been told they're smart their whole life. They will stop approaching learning as if it were a process. and Instead, they think it's a trait that they're either smart or not and that goes with everything right bass if you're you're a great basketball player you're a great everything so there's a little bit of danger and too much praise if we use if we give the wrong kind of praise if we tell people if somebody's starting an iv for the first time and they're just like for some reason they have nice kinesthetics for it and you tell them oh you're just a natural at that it feels good to them in the moment but later it may be a little destabilizing when they come across something that's difficult and going to take more time to grow that skill set. Yeah, no, you absolutely nailed it. That's exactly the impression I got out of it. I think the only thing I can add to it is that, you know, the difference between growth and fixed is that with growth mindsets, you take challenges as an opportunity to learn. You look forward to it. If it is hard or challenging or even failures, right? With growth mindsets, you are okay with failures because you know that that failure is going to catapult your learning faster than anything else mm-hmm. versus a fixed mindset person. And and the story that Carol Dweck used in the book that really stuck with me, you think about this natural athlete, right? So you got this this young kid that's playing a sport and um, you know, he or she is so 
naturally talented within their high school. It, it, you know, they're all varsity and, and they're going to get a ride to the college. But in the environment they were in, they stood out. But as soon as they went to the next level, they've never had to really work and grind through adversity. So at the college level, then they wash out and everybody's surprised. Well, why did they, you know, why they wash out? We thought they were going to go the whole way. It's because of that mindset, you know, know, by telling them you are a natural versus, hey, this is going to take a lot of hard work or with accomplishments. uh, Hey, I'm proud of you. I know that took a lot of work to get that A or to get that 100 on the test or, or hey, to learn this skill. We want to praise effort. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, more than uh, natural talent, because the issue with natural talent is talent alone is not going to take you to the professional, to the top of the game. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of other books that we can talk about what's really needed, you know, to go to the top of the game. But that book had an influence on me, how I teach, how mm-hmm. I talk to myself, how I think of myself, and then more importantly, how I parent. I uh, really have taken a lot of these lessons and try to apply it, you know, to my children. Well, We'll see how successful I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I've said before, you praise the process, not the person. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, for me, since this is a medic podcast, um, Mm -hmm. think about how you treat your ride-alongs or your, you know, your students or the new employee. Okay. They don't know something. So teach them. I really appreciate you coming on. I've, I've wanted to get you on the show for quite some time and it makes sense that we would we would talk about books. I can't wait for other people to hear what books have influenced you, what books you would give a new paramedic, which books you read over and over. Uh, Ginger, you have lived in my ear for many, many years. You you and your incredible guests, and I've taken a lot away from each one of them. And I just appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. <laughs>